All right, y'all close your eyes if you would. So in 60 days, roughly, 60 days, it's January 5th, New Year, Thanksgiving, Christmas, it's all done. For many of us, it'll be a blur. We feel like we got hit by a truck. I don't want that to be the case for you this year. So before you hadn't bought a present, I hope you haven't cooked anything. You haven't said yes to a party on the front end before you step into the swirl that is the holidays. I want you to take a minute. I want to do two things. One, I want you to attempt to discern your own heart. And then two, to listen to the Lord. So the first thing, we want to discern our own hearts. What do you want? What do you want? When you think about Thanksgiving and Christmas, what, what do you want on January 5th when you look back? For you to be able to say, man, we, we did it right this year. It can't be ten things. It's one or it's two. And most likely it's not, it's not things. It's, it's values. What are you hoping to grab onto? Holy Spirit, would you show us our own hearts? This morning, would you help us discern what our desires are as we think about Thanksgiving and Christmas? We do confess that it's so easy, and particularly in the culture that we live in, that yells so loudly and that drives so hard. Many of us live under obligation and guilt and responsibility, and it can be hard. It can be really hard to know. What does it even mean to celebrate? What does it mean to celebrate? So God, would you show us our own hearts? What's for each one of us? What would it mean for us to say, I, I, I won Christmas this year. I won. It didn't beat me. I should have grab on to whatever that is. It's one or two words. Maybe you can write those down, put them in your phone. We're going to step two. God, I pray that you would speak to us. We would have your perspective on Thanksgiving and Christmas and what that means for us personally. Is there a gift that you desire, desire to give to us? What would that be? Again, most likely it's not going to, it's not going to be a thing. From your perspective, God, what would it look like for us to celebrate well? Most likely a thought just flashed through your mind. I want you to grab onto that. You can write that down or lock it away as well. Amen. If you're here with somebody, then over lunch, I want you to compare notes. What you thought what they thought, what you felt like maybe the Lord was speaking to you and what they felt like the Lord was speaking to them. It's not going to arm wrestle over it. Just you put it out there and discuss and, and see. There may be some uh, changes you might want to make or some things that you might want to do to grab on to whatever those values were that you felt like the Lord uh, spoke to you uh, as you prepare for uh, the next couple of months. All right, we're in First Samuel 30. We've been looking at David and Saul running on parallel tracks. They, never, they don't cross paths again. 
But for both of them, their life is really centered around this battle between the Philistines and the Israelites. It's the major event in the last uh, five or six chapters of 1 Samuel. And both of them are moving around that battle. A couple of weeks ago, we saw David was conscripted by Achish, the king of the Philistines, to fight against the Israelites. Put him in a very difficult position. And God graciously delivered him. Some other kings got nervous about David being on their side, and he said, just send him home. So David's down there in that bottom left star in Aphek, and he got sent home to a place called Ziklag. It won't fit on the map. It's 60 miles, excuse me, 60 miles south of where they were. The Philistines are up in that green star, Shunem. They've gathered their forces, and there's a ton of them, and they're pretty deep into Israelite territory. Saul has responded by gathering the Israelite troops And they're in Mount Gilboa, that yellow star, and Saul is scared to death because the the Philistines have more people than him. The Philistines have come deep into his land, and he can't hear the Lord. God is not speaking to him. And so last week we saw Saul in his brilliance decide, because God's not speaking to him, to go consult a witch. So he goes up to that blue star indoor to talk to a witch to see if she can bring Samuel back from the dead so he can find out from dead Samuel what he should do. We looked at that last week. Terrible decision on Saul's part. Where we're going to look at this week is what happens for David when he goes home. And next week we'll see what happens to Saul when he goes to battle. So this week, what happens to David when he goes home? David and his men reached Ziklag on the third day. Now the Amalekites had raided the Negev and Ziklag. They had attacked Ziklag and burned it and had taken captive the women And everyone else in it, both young and old, they killed none of them, but carried them off as they went on their way. When David and his men reached Ziklag, they found it destroyed by fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. So David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. David's two wives have been captured, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. Each one was bitter in spirit because of his sons and daughters. But David found strength in the Lord his God. So David and his guys, it takes three days to get back. It's about 60 miles. An army would would march 15 to 20 miles a day. So three days they get back. And if you can imagine the attitude of the guys on the three days back, particularly David, I think he's thrilled. So I I said a, a few weeks ago, I think he sinned when he chose to move to Philistia. And all of these things kind of fall out from there. There's all kinds of negative consequences of that decision. One of them being that he is ordered by the Philistine king to fight against his own people, the Israelites, with the Philistines. Because the Philistine king thinks David's one of his guys because he's been lying to him for 16 months. You can go back and read that in uh, chapter 27 and 29. And so David is in a very difficult spot He marches with his 600 men 60 miles to Aphek. And I think the whole time, those three days, I think he's sweating. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? How am I going to get out of that? I think he's praying, God, you got to help me. I've screwed up. I need Something's got to break here. I don't know what to do. And there's some other kings, and they're nervous. They don't trust David, so they get him sent home. And so I think that three-day journey back, he's feeling like a million dollars. I think he is happy. He is full of joy, he's relieved, he's all of the things that you think of and how you feel when you've been saved, when you've been in a very difficult spot and somebody rescues you from it. That's how he feels, I think. And as they get close to their town, Ziklag, they can probably see the smoke coming up from it. 
and they all get nervous about that. And they reach the town, and there's no animals. Every one of them stolen. There's none. Of, all their stuff is either burned or gone. And on top of that, they got the, their families aren't there. The kids are gone. Their wives are gone. If you've ever been robbed and you've come home, you kind of know what that feels like. Multiply that out. They just didn't get robbed. Their house got burned to the ground and every body in it got kidnapped. At that point, I don't know if they know they're kidnapped or if they think they're dead. And the guys, these 600 men, are devastated. The Bible says they cry until they don't have the strength to cry anymore. That's how much they cry. And then we see that David is in great distress. Why? Because the men want to stone him. They're saying, at least on some level, this is his fault. And I don't necessarily fault them for that thinking. I would tend to agree with them on at least some level. David was their leader, and he got them into this. Sixteen months ago, when he made a decision to move to Philistia out of fear, because he figured at some point Saul's going to catch me, the last word he had was to stay in Judah. He disobeys that. He moves to this foreign land. Then everything else falls out from there. So he lives in Philistia, and he's got to figure out some way to feed his 600 men plus their wives plus their kids, 2,000 people. So he starts raiding villages. And he can't tell the king who he's actually raiding because the king will then kill him. So he has to lie to him and say, I'm raiding Israelite villages because that's what the Philistine king wants to hear. So he moves to Philistia in disobedience, I believe, to the Lord out of fear. I believe it was a sinful choice. Then he has to take care of his people. So he raids villages. He raids enemies of Israel, but he can't tell the king that because he'll get killed. And so he has to lie. He lies for 12 to 16 months. And what the king thinks is, well, David has become obnoxious to the Israelites. They hate him and he hates them and he's loyal to me. So then when he decides to attack the Israelites, he says, you and your people are going to fight with me. Y'all are great warriors. You obviously hate your own people. You've been raiding them for 16 months. So come on, let's fight. And then David and all his men have to march 60 miles away to Aphek and leave their town unguarded. All of that you can tie back to that initial decision to move. And because their town is unguarded, the Amalekites, whom David has raided for the last 16 months, see an opportunity for payback. And so they go to Ziklag, they burn it to the ground, they take all their livestock, and, he takes, and they take all of the women and the children And the men, I think, rightfully want to hang at least some portion of that on David. It's your fault. You're the one that got us into this mess. Some of it's not fair, but some of it is definitely his responsibility. And David, as we see throughout his life, and as we will continue to see throughout his life, in his darkest moments, he turns to the Lord. Biggest difference between him and Saul. In his darkest moments, he turns to the Lord, and God strengthens him. Verse 7, then David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. Abiathar brought it to him, and David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue this raiding party? Will I overtake them? Pursue them, he answered, you will certainly overtake them and succeed in the rescue. David and the 600 men with him came to the Bezor Valley, where some stayed behind. 200 of them were too exhausted to cross the valley, but David and the other 400 continued the pursuit. They found an Egyptian in a field and brought him to David. They gave him water to drink and food to eat, part of a cake of pressed figs and two cakes of raisins. He ate and was revived, for he had not eaten any food or drunk any water for three days and three nights. David asked him, who do you belong to? Where do you come from? He said, I'm an Egyptian, the slave of an Amalekite. My master abandoned me when I became ill three days ago. 
We raided the Negev of the Carathites, some territory belonging to Judah and the Negev of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag. David asked, can you lead me to this raiding party? Swear to me before God you will not kill me or hand me over to my master and I'll take you down to them. He led David down and there they were, there they were scattered over the countryside, eating, drinking, and reveling because of the great amount of plunder they'd taken from the land of the Philistines and from Judah. David fought them from dusk until the evening of the next day, and none of them got away except 400 young men who rode off on camels and fled. David recovered everything the Amalekites had taken, including his two wives. Nothing was missing, young or old, boy or girl, plunder or anything else that had been taken. David brought everything back. He took all the flocks and herds, and his men drove them ahead of the other livestock, saying, This is David's plunder. So David lost everything, and now David gets everything back. He doesn't go, he doesn't start no pity parties. He doesn't roll up, curl up in a ball. He goes to the priest who he has with him, Abiathar. And Abiathar, he wears this sleeveless shirt called an ephod. And it's got all these jewels, 12 jewels sewn on it, one for each tribe of Israel. And these other two things on it, we know exactly what they were, an Urim and a Thuman. And those were ways that God spoke to the priest. We don't know exactly what that looked like, but David, it's, it's a common way that God speaks in the Old Testament. And, and David says to him, I need you to inquire the Lord, ask him, are we gonna, can, can we go after these guys? And if we go after them, are we going to be successful? And, and Abiathar asks the Lord, and the Lord says, yes, go. And so put yourself in the shoes of those guys. You've just walked 60 miles. You probably walked 60 miles and were sent back home pretty quickly from Aphek. And you've walked 60 miles back elated because you get to go home and you were delivered from this very difficult spot of having to choose how, how are we going to navigate fighting with our enemies against our family? What are we supposed to do there? You're elated that God has delivered you. You come home, you see smoke rising up from your city. You walk into your town. Everything you own is burned or gone, including your family. And now you've cried so much, you have no strength left to weep, and it's time to go again. And so he takes these 600 men and they begin to go after the Amalekites. They don't know where they are. They don't know how many of them there are. They just start walking, marching after them. And they get to this valley and there's this brook that runs through the middle of it. And 200 of the men, a third of his troops, say, we're done. Tap out. We can't go any farther. We were talking about that with our staff. And one of the wives was like, if that was my husband and he knew I was kidnapped... And he's saying, let me hang out by the river instead of coming to get me. It's going to be a difficult reunion. I don't know how those guys reconciled that with their wives, the ones that did not continue on. But 400 of them did. So he's got 400 men. And they find an Egyptian. And they say to him, who are you? And he says, I'm a slave of the Amalekites. They cut me loose because I was sick. Can you tell me what happened? We raided all kinds of places. They didn't just go to Ziklag. We raided all kinds of places and we burned Ziklag down. Can you take me to them? Absolutely. Just don't give me back to my master. And so he leads David and his 400 men to where the Amalekites are. And it's a massive party. They have all this plunder that they've amassed during their raids. And they're enjoying themselves. And David sees them and his 400 men. We don't know how many Amalekites are, but they massively outnumber the Israelites. Only 400 of them escape. David only has 400 to start with. And yet they, they attack and they win. And the Bible's very explicit. Everything is restored. Nothing that was taken is lost. Everything is restored. In those last couple of verses, you see the words nothing and everything twice each. The Bible want, writer wants us to make sure we know everything David lost 
every bit of it was restored to him. And so he and his 400 troops and their, the wives of the 600 men and the kids of the 600 men and the livestock of all of these groups that the Amalekites have raided, not just their own stuff. They get everybody's stuff. And they move back towards Ziklag. Then David came to the 200 men who'd been too exhausted to follow him and who were left behind at the Bezor Valley. They came out to meet David and the men with him. As David and his men approached, he asked them how they were. But all the evil men and troublemakers among David's followers said, Because they did not go out with us, we will not share with them the plunder we recovered. However, each man may take his wife and children and go. David replied, No, my brothers, you must not do do that with what the Lord has given us. He's protected us and delivered into our hands the raiding party that came against us. Who will listen to what you say? The share of the man who stayed with the supplies is to be the same as that of him who went down to the battle. All will share alike. David made this a statute and ordinance for Israel from that day to this. When David reached Ziklag, he sent some of the plunder of the elders of Judah, who were his friends, saying, Here's a gift for you from the plunder of the Lord's enemies. David sent it to those, and then there's 13 cities I'm not going to read. I'll butcher all the names. And to those in all the other places where he and his men had roamed. So David lost everything. David gets everything back. And then David distributes. He gives away what he gets back. The principle there that David is working off of is that the Lord gave us this victory. That's the underlying principle. And then he works it out in two different ways. He works it out with these towns. There's 13 towns in southern Judah that are mentioned. And David sends all of them something. Some of it is, a, is, a, is an expression of the fact that God has delivered the Amalekites into the hands of the Israelites. Hundreds of years ago, God said, wipe them out, and David finally does. We don't hear from the Amalekites again for 250 years, and we hear about them again. It's a footnote. They're wiped out. They never bother Israelite again. the Israelites again. David finally completes something God had told his people to do all the way back in Deuteronomy. And so uh, David says, y'all are all part of this family. Y'all are all Israelites just like me. God gave us this victory so everybody gets to participate. Everybody gets a share of this plunder because God's the one who's done this. This was his battle. This was his war. I think it's also an expression of thanks. It's, those were the areas where he'd been roaming with this group of 2,000 people for the last 8, 9, 10 years. He'd eaten their stuff, and he's paying them back in a sense. He's thanking them for their kindness to him over the last decade or so. I think maybe more for us, to me, one of the most challenging passages in the whole Old Testament is this idea that the guys that stayed behind got the same amount as the guys who went and fought. Like, I get it. The guys who go back and who who have fought and come back and like, y'all don't get anything except your families. I understand. Those guys were hanging out by the river. And these 400 men risked injury, disablement, and death to go and fight. While these 200 guys said, we're too tired. We can't do it. it was, David didn't say to them, you've got to stay here and protect our stuff. They chose to back, to, to back out. And these other 400 guys kept going. And they took all of the risk. And then the reward is divided evenly. I can get why those guys say, no, we're not doing that. But for David, it has nothing to do with those guys who went and fought and everything to do with the Lord. He says, God protected you. And God delivered these people into your hands. It's all his stuff. All of this reward is his. And so everyone who's on the team, whether they played or not, they all get a trophy. Everyone who was on, a, on the team, 
whether they played or not, they all get a reward. Every one of them. All of them do. And that was a statute and an ordinance from that day forward. It changed the way the Israelites approached the plunder of war. And at that point, war becomes this thing. It's, it's God is fighting for us. And when we win, it's because God is with us. And so everything we get is because God has given it to us. And so who are we to hold on to it? Everybody gets a share. I don't know what that looks like for us. Again, it's a challenging passage for me. When I think about that, I don't know if you're in a position where you set salaries or where you give bonuses. What does that, does that mean everybody makes the same thing? Does that mean everybody at the end of the year gets the same slice of the pie, regardless of how much they contributed to the, to the growth of the company? I don't know. If you believe on any level that the, the growth of your organization is due to the hand of God, then I, you have to wrestle with that. I don't know what it looks like. I'm not an economist. I know God's not a capitalist, for sure. You can see that here. But I don't know exactly what that looks like when you play that out in an organization. To me, again, it's a very challenging passage. For all of us, though, regardless of where you are in an organization, if you're ever in a position to do anything with money, I think what you see here is an Old Testament example of a New Testament truth. We see this truth in the Old Testament, but it's, it, it seems to be uh, minor. In the Old Testament, it's, in the, excuse me, in the New Testament, it's a major theme, which is the grace of God. God is gracious. He's always gracious. He's gracious from Genesis to Revelation, but we tend to see it more clearly in the New Testament. This passage, that, that, those last ten verses remind me of the parable of the vineyard workers. You remember that, Matthew 20? So there's a guy, a landowner, and it's harvest time, and he doesn't have enough guys who work with him. And a harvest, you've got to get it in, or it spoils. And so he goes out at six in the morning to find some guys who will come work for him. And he says, I'm going to pay you $100 to come work with me. And I'm going to, you work all day, I'm going to give you $100, and those guys say a deal, deal and they, they go and work. And Jesus said, that's what the kingdom of God is like, or the kingdom of heaven. It's just like that. And then at nine, he realizes, I need more workers, they're not going to get it done. And so he goes back and he gets some more workers. And he brings them back to work. He says, I'm going to pay you what's fair. And then at noon, he realizes, I need more workers. They're not going to get it done. And he goes back at 12 and gets more. And then he goes back at 3 in the afternoon and gets more. And he goes back at 5 in the afternoon and he gets more. And then at 6 o'clock, when the sun goes down, he calls everybody in to pay them. And he starts with the guys he hired last. And the guys who'd worked for one hour, the guys who'd worked from 5 to 6, he gives them $100. And then he goes to the guys he hired at three who'd worked for three hours and he gives them $100. And then he goes to the guys who he hired at noon and he gives them $100 for their six hours of work. And the guys who have been working for nine hours and for 12 hours, of course, they're thinking we're going to get more. We worked longer than them and the conditions were worse. We worked in the heat of the day. These guys were there from five to six. The sun was going down. They didn't even sweat. Of course, we're going to get more. And the guys who've been working for nine hours, who hired at nine in the morning, he gives them $100. And then the guys who've been there all day, he gives them $100. And they're indignant. They're offended. And they say to him, what, what, what are you doing? And he says, what? what, what why, are you, why, why are you upset? I honored our deal. I told you I'd pay you $100 if you work for 12 hours. You work for 12 hours, I gave you $100. I didn't treat you unfairly. Are you envious because I'm generous? The word literally is good. Are you envious because I'm good? Can I do whatever I want with my money? It's a picture of the grace of God, and it's offensive to us at times. It can be offensive to us to feel like we've been laboring in the heat of the day. We've been following Jesus for a long period of time. We've suffered. We've sacrificed. 
and someone who on their deathbed, literally with their last breath, is repents and asks for forgiveness, receives the same thing we get. How is that fair? It can make us mad at times. This isn't right. This isn't right. There's got to be like levels or something. We get a bigger house than them. How does it work? It doesn't seem fair to us at all. And what God would say to us is, what are you envious about? It's mine. Are you jealous because of the way I choose to give what I have? I've honored the terms that I set out for you. Anybody who acknowledges their sin and repents, anybody who acknowledges their need for grace receives. And so they're reconciled to me. Think of eternal life not as a place but as a relationship. John 17, 3, this is eternal life that they know you. Jesus, and the one that sent you, the Father. We've broken relationship with him. And God says, anyone who acknowledges that they've broken relationship with me and then says, I desire a relationship with you, and I recognize I'm not the one that can make it right. There's not enough good in me to make it right. I can't make up for all the things that I've done wrong. I recognize, Jesus, you alone can bridge the gap. I can't do that. I need your mercy. Anyone who does that, anyone who acknowledges their sinfulness, that they've lived independent of God, and anyone who acknowledges their need for his grace and mercy, they will be reconciled to God. They get relationship with God. Whether that happens when you're six or on your deathbed is irrelevant. Whether you spend all of your life trying to be good or all of your life trying to be bad, it's irrelevant when you come to that moment of repentance and trust. And what God would say to all of us, don't be envious because I'm good. Don't be envious because I'm generous. It's mine. Relationship with me is mine to give. And these are the terms on which I give it. I give it to anyone who acknowledges their need for me, their desire to be in relationship with me. I give relationship to them whenever that happens. If you're 8, if you're 48, if you're 88, it's irrelevant. We all get the same thing. We all are reconciled and restored to him. That can be offensive, difficult for some of us. It's not fair. It's not fair at all. It's grace and it's mercy. You also see here in 1 Samuel 30 that God is just. You see that he's gracious and you also see that he's just. It's the final, I think, the final uh, comparison between David and Saul. In 1 Samuel 28, 15, Saul says he's greatly distressed. He's called Samuel, this witch has raised Samuel's spirit soul up from Sheol. And Samuel says... Through that, Samuel says, what, what are you doing, Saul? Why have you disturbed me? And Saul says, I'm, I'm in great distress. The Philistine army is attacking me, and God is not speaking to me. God has left me. I'm in distress. In 1 Samuel 30, uh, verse 6, David is greatly distressed. It's the exact same word. That word distress is descriptive of the emotional state that someone feels when they're squeezed. And David is greatly distressed because the men are thinking of stoning him. Saul is distressed because he has this army that's attacking him and God is not speaking to him. David is distressed because his men are thinking of stoning him because of a, I think, because of a sinful decision he made a year and a half before. And the difference between the two, when Saul is distressed, he goes to find a witch who can bring Samuel back from the dead. And when David is distressed, he turns to the Lord and is strengthened. That's the difference between the two. And you may say, well, if God had spoken to Saul, then he wouldn't have had to seek out the witch 
And that's true. I agree. If God had spoken to Saul through a priest, through a prophet, through a dream, those are the three ways that, that he sought the Lord. And in all three, God ignored him. If God had spoken to him in that moment, then he wouldn't have had to go see a witch. So how is that Saul's fault? Why would God do that to him? If you go back and you look at the life of Saul beginning in chapter 9 of 1 Samuel, you don't see anything in him that says, I listen to the Lord. I'm responsive to the Lord. I desire to be obedient to the Lord. He's confirmed or he's anointed by Samuel the prophet. Dumps oil on his head. You don't forget that. You're going to be the king. Then Samuel gives him three signs. These three things are going to be fulfilled within the next day. And all three of them are fulfilled, and they're very specific and very unique signs. You can go back and read them in chapter 9 and chapter 10. And then there's a public convocation where Saul is chosen, and there are these lots, and he's picked out of the 600,000 men in Israel. He's chosen, and where is he? Hiding among the luggage. That's not humility. That's fear. That's resisting the call of God on his life. And you see that played out. In chapter 13, Samuel says, you wait for seven days and I'm coming to you and I'm going to offer a sacrifice. When Samuel is not there on sunup, at sunup on the seventh day, Saul, fearful, takes matters into his own hands and offers a sacrifice. Not a big deal to us, huge deal for him. Kings can't do that. That's what prophets do. Kings can't do it. Saul takes matters into his own hands. He's rebelling against the Lord. In chapter 15, God, through Samuel, says very explicitly, I want you to destroy the Amalekites, men, women, Boys, girls, sheep, cattle, all of it. Saul is selectively obedient, which is a nice way of saying he was disobedient. The king, he says, I'm going to leave him alive. He takes the best of the livestock and says, I'm going to keep that alive as well. In chapter 24, he says to David, I know God has chosen you to be the king. And so my response to that is, I'm going to kill you. He's resistant to the Lord. All we see from him is someone who does what he wants. All we see from him is someone who ignores and resists and rebels. There's nothing in 20 plus years of Saul's history that says if God had spoken to him, he actually would have done what God said. Saul's history is the opposite. If God had spoken to him, Saul would have done what he wanted, which is what he always did. Galatians 6, 7, don't be deceived. God can't be mocked. We reap what we sow. Saul has sown disobedience for 20 plus years. He's sown resistance to the Lord for 20 plus years. And now he's reaping that. God is not a vending machine that Saul at this moment can go through and push and say, this is what I want in this moment. Because his history is, I don't do what God asked me to do. I don't respond submissively to what God tells me. And so in this moment, when he is seeking God, God doesn't respond. Saul is reaping what he sowed. You see the same thing in Exodus with Pharaoh. Pharaoh hardens his heart. Moses performs these miraculous signs and wonders. And and Pharaoh initially says, okay, I I yield. I'm going to let your people go, God. And then almost immediately, as soon as the plague lifts, he says, never mind, just joking. And his heart is hardened five times. And on the sixth time, we read that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. What you see there is what God says is, if you're not going to cooperate with me, then I'm going to cooperate with you. If, If you're not going to allow me to work through you, but based on your submission and obedience, then I'm going to work through you based on your resistance and your disobedience. I'm going to get my work done one way or the other. You see that with the Pharisees in Jesus' day, whose hearts are so hard they can't see the Messiah literally standing in front of them, working miracles in front of them, fulfilling Scripture in front of them. 
Jesus speaks to them in parables. Why? Because their hearts are hard. And that hardness of heart, God actually confirms that hardness of heart, and that leads to Jesus' crucifixion, which is ultimately what God wanted to do anyway in order to bring about redemption. You reap what you sow. And we see that with Saul. The reason God didn't answer him is because Saul never, never obeyed anything God had ever said his whole life. He'd never responded obediently to the Lord. So God has hardened Saul in his disobedience and doesn't speak to him. Is salvation still possible for Saul? Up to this dying breath, the answer is yes. We just sang the song. There's no repentance in Saul. When God doesn't speak to him, his response is not, where, where, God, what have I done? Why aren't you speaking to me? Where have I blown it? His response is, let me go find a witch and bring up a dead prophet. He knows better than that. He kicked them all out of the country because he knew that's what he was. He had already done that. He knew that it was simple to seek them. David's response is different. You reap what you sow. The flip of that, you reap what you sow. 1 Corinthians 3, 12 through 15, Paul talks about getting rewarded based on the decisions that you make. So this is not salvation. You have to make a clear distinction. You're adopted into the family of God 100% because of his grace. 100% because of his grace. Up until your dying moment, his desire is for you to repent of your sins and say, God, I desire a relationship with you, and I recognize I can't make it right. And you made it right. Up until your dying breath, that offering, it's, it's grace. You don't, we sang it. You don't deserve it, and you can't earn it. None of us can. Once you're adopted into his family, you're a son or a daughter. God has good works that he's created in advance for you to do, and he rewards you based on your obedience. There's a parable in Luke 19, the parable of the mine is a guy's loaded, and he's leaving for a long period of time, and he gives 10 servants $100 each. And when he comes back, the one, the one guy comes in and says, you gave me 100 here's 1000 and, this, and the master says, you've done great. Here's 10 cities. You multiplied my money by 10. And so here's 10 cities for you to take care of. And another guy says, you gave me 100. Here's 500 back. That's amazing. You multiplied what I gave you five times. And so here's five cities for you to take care of. Their reward is proportionate to their work. And that's true for us as believers, as followers of Jesus. You are rewarded for your behavior. You're not punished for your sins. You're saved from the wrath of God. That's what it means to be saved. Jesus died for you. Your sins only have to be punished once, and Jesus took that for you. But you are absolutely rewarded for your righteousness. So there's a sense in which, it, whether it's when you're eight or on your dying breath, if you turn to God in repentance and faith, and you receive the same reward, which is relationship with God. And there's another thing that's equally true, because God is just as you reap what you sow. And if someone has spent their whole life sowing Hell, and at the last moment they repent, they receive heaven. It's the only time that we see that idea of reaping and sowing broken is when, when it comes to the cross. But there's been nothing good sown for however many years. There's no rewards there. For those of you who are faithful and you're persevering and you're persistent and you're kind and you're loving, and you're going, I don't see, what, what is the point I see people who are living terribly, and they seem to be doing a whole lot better than me. They seem to be a whole lot happier than me. What exactly am I doing this for again? Why can't I, just in my last moment, repent? God sees. God knows. And he rewards. Jesus says it. Paul says it. You see it in Revelation. 
He rewards us for what we do. Paul, after he says, don't, God, don't be deceived. We can't be, God can't be mocked. He reaps what he sows. He says, don't give up. Don't grow weary doing well because in due season, you'll reap a harvest for the righteous things that you've done. Some of you this morning, I think you're tired. You don't see the payoff for what you're doing. And you may not see it until you die. You may not see it until the next life, but your life is longer on the other side of death than this side of death anyway. It's better to get the payoff then than now. But you need to recognize and know none of it is ignored, none of it's overlooked, and none of it's forgotten. Every act of righteousness, every act of submission, every act of obedience, every act of sacrifice, every act of love, all of those things that are done in faith, God makes a note and he will pay you back. In the way, he pays back. We don't know what it looks like. We don't know what the rewards are. The New Testament doesn't tell us. But what we know about God is he's a good father and he only gives good gifts and you can't outgive him. You can't. He gives back, pressed down, shaken together and running over. You sow a seed you reap a tree. It's not proportional at all. Think about all the apples that come from one seed. It's wildly disproportionate. That's what it means to reap. Parable of the soils. You reap 30, 60, 100 times. It's not selfish to think that way. Jesus is the one who said it. You have a good father. He recognizes everything that you're doing. He recognizes the Think about David. Ten years. I'm living in the wilderness. I've done nothing wrong. We don't have any food. I've got 2,000 people I'm supposed to take care of. I've got a crazy king who's trying to kill me. God sees every bit of that. God sees his faithfulness during those ten years. And he rewards him for that. He honors him for that. He didn't choose him because of that. Again, don't confuse the two. You're adopted into the family of God because of his grace. Because you recognize you're not good enough. You don't earn it. You can't earn it. You don't deserve it. Once you're in the family of God as a son or a daughter, your obedience, your righteousness, you're saying no and you're saying yes, all of those things are noted. And every one of them will be rewarded. Let's pray. Bo's going to come up. We're going to close with ministry. Two big categories. We'll pray with you about anything. Two big categories. If you're here this morning and you've never been adopted into the family of God, if you're sitting there thinking, man, i got to clean myself up and brush myself off. I've got to do better and try harder. None of that stuff is true. You want a relationship with God. The first thing that you need to do is acknowledge that you've sinned. That you've lived a life independent of him. And then say, God, I don't want to do that anymore. And I recognize I can't make it right. I receive what Jesus did to make it right for me. If that's you this morning, we want to pray with you. That God would seal that work in your heart. There's no magic words that you have to pray. We just want to pray for God to seal that work in your heart. That he would fill you with his spirit, and that you would know beyond a shadow of a doubt 
that you've been adopted into his family and that you're a son or you're a daughter of his. It's not about how good you are or how hard you work. Many of you have already made that decision. You're a son or you're a daughter. God loves you and is pleased with you. And yet, you're going, I don't see the payoff. I'm dying here. You're growing weary and doing well. And we want to pray for God to sustain you and to fill you and to strengthen you. We're going to pray for God to reward you because he says he would. And don't hear, don't think about that as selfish or base or somehow God's not looking for martyrs he's a good father and he desires to give good gifts to his children he'll reward you now or he'll reward you later or he'll do both that's on him we're going to ask him to do that for you and you don't need to feel shallow or superficial for asking for God to honor the decisions that you're making and you, as you attempt to follow Him. So Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you speak? I do pray if there are any, if we have any lost sheep in here, people who've wandered away, I pray that they would be found this morning. If we have any who would say, I'm a rebellious son, I've run away. I haven't wandered away. I've run away. Would this be the morning that they stop running? That they hear your invitation to come home and that they would turn around and see you there with your arms open? God, for your sons and daughters, we don't get the whole idea of rewards. We for sure don't want to be mercenary, but God absolutely are thankful. We reap what we sow. God, for those who are sowing in tears. Who have been sowing in tears. God, I pray that they would reap in joy. I pray that that season would shift soon. God, for those who have been sowing for a long time and they're growing weary because they're not seeing anything. God, we pray for a harvest for them pressed down and shaken together and running over. So come now, Holy Spirit, I pray, and speak to us and give us grace to respond as you lead in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys can stand. We do want to encourage you to come forward. There's nothing magic about that, but it is an expression of faith, and God honors that. So we'll dismiss us in a couple of minutes.